God creates and shapes his people with the gospel. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is a absolute joy to be back with you guys, and we are thankful as a family to be to be to be with you guys here at WSBC. You know, something that I've appreciated or, or learned to appreciate over the the last couple of years is learning the history behind individual churches, uh, learning how, how churches came about, uh, where, where there wasn't a church before. How, how did that? church now that there is one. Uh, where, where did it come from? I mean, just, just thinking of the last three churches that I've been a member at, uh, there's our church in Kentucky in the United States where we just left. Uh, that church started back in 1894. There was a growing suburb. I mean, for China standards, it was still a very small city. Uh, but for the U.S., it was, it was growing. Uh, and a church actually planted a, the, that church from the city out to the, what was then the suburbs. Oh, that's encouraging. Or before that, we were uh, members of, a, of a Capitol Hill Baptist Church in, in Washington, D.C. Well, that church started back in 1878. And that church, which is now known kind of the world over for lots of its influence, which is really good, you know how it actually started? It actually started as a small outreach to children that were living on Capitol Hill near the near 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 the uh, near uh, Washington, and then by God's grace, the parents actually became believers as well, and then they covenanted together as a church, and now it's CHBC, or the the one right before that, we planted River City Baptist Church down in the the south side of of Shanghai. Well, that church that wasn't a, a planned plant by any means. Uh, we planted that church out of persecution. WSBC was growing. We were really thankful for that. And yet, we're, given circumstances, a number of us had to leave, and so we planted RCBC, which is still, by God's grace, in existence today. You know, learning the history behind a church, it doesn't tell you everything, it does, but it does help you to grow in a love for that church and a love for the God who has sustained that church up until today. Uh, each of those churches, I mean, RCBC was planted in 2019. Uh, my church in Louisville was back in 1894, and the one even before that in D.C. was in 1878. God has faithfully sustained each of those churches until today. That helps us to grow in our love for Him when we hear those things. I mean, I wonder how many of you guys know the history of West Shanghai Baptist Church. Where did this church come from? Well, just a, a very brief, well, Shanghai International Bible Church that's been meeting over kind of on the east side of, 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 uh, of this, this part of Shanghai was by God's grace growing, and so we had a number of members on the west side, and so by God's grace we chose to plant the church on the west side. It was wonderfully encouraging. And all the way until today, God has been kind to this church, through pandemic, through persecution, through all sorts of things, God has sustained this church. Remembering where this church came from can help cultivate our heart, uh, not only for the God who has sustained us, but for those who are now a part of this church. Ask those who were there from the beginning. 
uh, how this church came about, that would be an encouraging lunch conversation. Now, while every church's beginning is a bit unique, every church kind of comes about in a bit of a different way, every true church has to have a couple of, of core ingredients or else you're not going to have a church. One, you have to have the right preaching of the gospel, right? No gospel, no church. You might have a gathering of Christians, that would be a wonderful thing, but no gospel, no church. You also have to have the, the, the right practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the end of the service this morning, but that is a, a essential church thing. No Lord's Supper, you don't have a church. That's how we regularly affirm who is in and who is out of the church. But it's just really with these few small things, right preaching, right baptism, right Lord's Supper, that God, by the power of His Spirit, does some absolutely remarkable things. He uses a few small ingredients to begin to create a community of people, a community of people that sometimes have absolutely nothing in common from the world standards, but are now regularly gathering, united as a church, every Lord's Day. Well, this is exactly what I hope we'll see this morning at not the beginning of a church in Washington, D.C. or or Shanghai, China, but we're going to see the beginning of a church in early Macedonia in the first century, how Paul planted the church of Thessalonica. So if you have Bibles, or I think it's in the bulletin as well, please turn to Acts 17. Acts 17, we're just going to look at a few verses, Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. And it's my prayer this morning that as we look at this passage, that you'll grow in a renewed vision of not only what a church is, you know, kind of, kind of how a church goes from not being a church to, to being a church, but also what a church can become. How, how with those few small ingredients how this strange new community of people begins to do some absolutely extraordinary things among each other. I hope that you grow in a renewed vision for what a church can do and become when things are going really well, and then also when things get difficult. Because in a local church, God calls us to really ordinary gospel living. He calls us to, to live normal gospel lives, but... It's through those normal gospel lives that he uses to do extraordinary things, have a wonderful kingdom impact in one another's lives and even then in a watching world. So listen as I read Acts 17, 1 to 9, and hopefully grow in our understanding of what a church is and what a church can become. Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and providing and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob 
set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against decrees of Caesar, saying that uh, there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right. Acts 17. Paul and his team of church church planters show up in Thessalonica There is no church, but by the end there is. How did this happen? Well, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the one brief sentence that I think is the main idea of Acts 17, 1 and 9. So write this down. God creates and shapes his people with the gospel. God creates and shapes his people with the gospel. This main idea is going to be what forms the the two main points of our sermon this morning. So let's begin. Look at the first section, verses 1 to 4. God creates his people through gospel proclamation. God creates his people through gospel proclamation. All right. So you just flip back in your Bible. Acts 16, Paul was in Philippi. We looked at that in, in Sunday school this morning. But Acts 16, Paul's in Philippi, and his church planters, then he and his church planting team, head west to Thessalonica. This is modern-day Greece. So you're modern-day Greece. They're in Thessalonica. In verse 2, what's he do? As was his custom, Paul doesn't waste any time. He heads straight to the synagogue where the Jews would have been worshiping. Uh, And what does he do? Well, he begins to do the exact same thing he does regardless of where he is. He proclaims the gospel. Now, but before we kind of get into his message, notice one brief detail that I find fascinating here. I find it interesting that Luke includes this tiny little detail in verse 2, that Paul was there for three Sabbath days. That would have been three Saturdays. Now, we don't know. Does that mean that Paul was only in Thessalonica for like three weeks? I mean, if he was really only there for three weeks, this would be like the most incredible trip of uh, three weeks in in, in human history. To to see a church like go from nothing to then a church by the end of those three weeks. That would be wonderful. We don't really know. Uh, It seems as though the letters that he wrote later, he was maybe there a little bit longer. But regardless, whether he was there for three weeks, three months, or three years, Paul's goal was very clear. He wanted to see a church established. Where there wasn't a church, he wanted to see one planted. And just like in Philippi, Paul's time in Thessalonica, we see at the very end, is going to come to a very abrupt end. He's not, he's not expecting to, to leave quickly, and yet he does. But here, whether he's there for a short time or a long time, his goal is the same, is to leave that city better than when he found it. That just doesn't mean having more influence. It means to see a church planted. I mean, friends, just, just briefly, you guys as a church have faced an incredible amount of people coming and, well, mostly going over the last number of years. And use this brief, I mean, just a kind of a brief side application here. 
for however long God would have you here in Shanghai, whether it's three weeks or three months or three years or even longer, to make it a goal in a similar way to Paul to, to leave this church better than when you found it. Uh, pour into people, whether it's three Sabbath days like Paul had, or whether it's longer. God doesn't waste any of our time, short or long. All right, well, let's get back to this passage briefly. Luke doesn't tell us a ton of stories in this passage. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we don't get any of the cool stories like in Acts 16 where you, you get the conversion of a Philippian jailer. Uh, it's just filled with exciting stuff. Uh, he doesn't tell us those stories here. But Luke does answer two really important questions for us that are incredibly instructive to us as how you guys should live as a church. He answers two questions. The first one is, oh, how did this church come about? Uh, how, how did, where there wasn't a church, how is there now a church by the end of this, this passage? And then two, he answers the question, who made up this church? It's not just an, Paul's idea. No, there were actually real people that made up this church. So first, how did this church come about? Well, very simply, Paul spoke the gospel. Notice all of the verbs that, Paul, that Luke uses to describe what Paul did in the synagogue. Uh, look at verse 2. He reasoned with them, explaining and proving, saying and proclaiming. I mean, it's like he's using every word that he can to talk about talking. Paul's work among them was a work, uh, it was a work of proclamation. It was to say a message. Paul knew that it wasn't going to be enough to just show up in Thessalonica and begin living like a Christian. Well, that's a good thing, but he knew that if he wanted to see a church planted there, if he wanted to see life among dead bones, well, he knew, just like Ezekiel did, that he had to speak words into the people that lived there. Paul didn't just say anything. Well, no, his message had a specific content. Again, look back at verse 2. He reasoned with them, not just in logic and reason. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Their conversations were based around the revealed Word. It wasn't just Paul's idea. He said, no, let's go back to the Bible and talk, what did God tell us in this? See, Paul was wise. He, he knew that these people knew their Old Testament, and so like just like Jesus did in his earthly ministry, like with the man on the, the way to Emmaus, he explained and proved that the Messiah, the king that they were waiting for, well, that Messiah, that Christ, had to come and had to suffer and die. Uh, presumably, Paul went to passages like Isaiah 53 and showed that God promised to bring about salvation. And he promised to do it not with an earthly king that would deliver them from, from Roman rule, but he promised to bring about salvation through one who has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul went to the Bible to proclaim Christ through the stories, the prophecies, the promises, and, and, and the covenants of the Old Testament. 
Paul's methodology is not that impressive. It's not that exciting. It's just going to the Bible and saying the Bible points to Jesus. Now, for you kids that are here, the, the, the few of you that are, have you ever wondered why your parents tell you Old Testament Bible stories? I mean, like, why does why do your, your parents talk to you about, like, David and Goliath? Noah, the flood, uh, Samson and Delilah, uh, all those stories. You know, when I was your age, I, I knew all of those Old Testament stories. I, I knew Adam and Eve, I knew Noah, Moses, David, Daniel, I knew all those stories, but I didn't really understand what they all meant. I mean, I could tell you the story, but I didn't know what they meant or, or how they all fit together. The, the Old Testament to me was kind of just a bunch of random stories piled together. Didn't really know what they mean, though. I mean, seriously, though, like Noah and the flood, David and Goliath. What do those have to do with each other? As a kid, I didn't know. But right here, Paul is teaching these people that, yes, the Bible has a lot of cool stories in it. But he's teaching them that all of those stories work together to tell one really big story. A, a big story about Jesus. See, Jesus is the perfect prophet. The perfect prophet who is, is far greater than Moses. Because he didn't just speak God's words to people. But Jesus is the word of God to people. Jesus is, is the perfect king who is greater than David. As awesome as David was, David defeated so many of Israel's enemies. But David couldn't defeat sin and death. Jesus is the king who can defeat our greatest enemy and did. Uh, Jesus is, is the perfect priest who's greater than Aaron and all the priests that came afterwards. Because Jesus didn't have to make sacrifice over and over again for God's people. Why? Because Jesus actually became a sacrifice for his people. You see how all of those Old Testament stories, good in all them, they're all pointing to Jesus. Friends, this church came about because, in Thessalonica, because Paul spoke the good news of Jesus. He pointed to the Old Testament and said, everything that we've been waiting for has finally arrived in Jesus. And friends, churches today come about and exist in the exact same way. Whether it's in Shanghai, in Sri Lanka, or in Spain. Paul's church planting strategy was to open up the Bible and then point to Jesus. Churches don't come out of programs or strategic plans or a particular pastor or even a shared cultural identity. No, God saves people through people speaking the good news of Jesus and then people believing the gospel. The good news that Jesus has come to save people from hell, to forgive our sin and to give us new life in him, when that message is proclaimed and people respond to it in faith and repentance, well, that's the beginning of God creating a new people for himself. Well, friends, just right here, uh, the, the last number of years, I, I can't imagine what it was like to stay here. But let me encourage you in this, that WSBC 
has always existed and will continue to exist because of this message. Friends, let me encourage you in your evangelism. Continue to proclaim that message. WSBC will continue to exist and will continue to, by God's grace, grow, not because people just come back from overseas, but by God's grace, this church will grow because people will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Encourage each other in evangelism. You know, perhaps the most encouraging thing a a church can witness is a baptism. I mean, it it was remarkable just coming in here and remembering the baptisms of a number of you guys from years ago. Uh, It's just, it brings tears to my eyes. Uh, Thinking about how encouraging it is to watch someone get baptized after becoming a believer in Jesus. But remember that behind almost every baptism is a lot of prayer. Behind almost every baptism is a lot of sharing. Behind almost every baptism is a lot of boldness, explaining, reasoning, all the same things Paul did 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica. Friends, encourage one another to remain faithful to evangelism. How does God create his people? Well, he creates them by people hearing the gospel. And how do people proclaim the gospel? Well, they do it together. They share the gospel together. Even this week, ask, get to know the non-Christians in each other's life. Ask another member of WSBC, hey, what coworker or family member can I pray for this week that's not a Christian? Friends, that will spur on evangelism in the, in the life of this church. We pray for the wonderful good fruit, and yet so often the normal day-to-day life of a church is just encouraging each other to remain faithful. Well, that's how this church came about. Paul was bold with the gospel, and by God's grace, he brought about fruit. So the second question that Luke answers for us is, well, who made up this church? Was it just some idea in Paul's mind? Well, no. This church was made up of all kinds of people. I mean, I love how Luke so anticlimactically records the the miraculous conversion of people in Thessalonica. Look back at verse 4. He says, and some of them, that is some of the people there, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the believing uh, of the leading women. Nothing miraculous happened. There wasn't an earthquake. There wasn't a major sign. The skies didn't open up. No, people heard the gospel and they said, yes, I believe that. And they became Christians. This was a diverse church. You had Jews, you had Greeks, you had men, women, people from all walks of life heard the gospel and responded in faith and repentance. Now, Paul didn't necessarily plan for this kind of diversity, but this is what God loves to do. He loves to bring people together from different backgrounds then unite them in nothing other than Jesus. I mean, if you flip back to Acts 16, Acts 16, you, you kind of get details of how the church in Philippi was, was planted. In Philippi, you have Lydia, a rich businesswoman that became a Christian. You have a slave girl who was demon-possessed that becomes a Christian. And then you have a Roman Philippian jailer who becomes a Christian. And then you have these three... Uh, slave girl, a rich businesswoman, and a former jailer that unite together to plant a church. They have nothing in common other than their, faith, their, their common faith in Jesus. 
the good news of Jesus is for all kinds of people, and in him, people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, can find real unity. I mentioned the the church that we were members of for a time while we were in the U.S. uh, in Washington, D.C., and one of my favorite memories of our time there was every Wednesday night, we would have a, a church Bible, a Bible study. We'd sit together, and this was COVID, so we had assigned seating, and we were you know, spread out. But I was every week assigned next to this one older sister. She was a, a single, older African-American woman uh, who, on, on face value, we had nothing in common. I was younger than she was. We are not of the same ethnicity. Uh, we don't have the same backgrounds. We're not from the same place. And I've got a lot of kids, and she was single all of her life. What are we going to talk about? Well, after one uh, Wednesday evening, after Bible study, she says, we just start talking, and she says, you know what? You would love to read this one book. It's by an old Scottish pastor. Why don't you read it, and then we'll talk about it later on. And, you know, there's some people that are just so godly. You just kind of do whatever they tell you to do. Uh, This was one of those people. And so I went home, got that book, and started reading it. And then for the next number of weeks, every Wednesday night was like a highlight of my week. We'd talk about Samuel Rutherford, a, a 18th century uh, pastor in Scotland who was imprisoned, uh, uh, was, was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. So there, every Wednesday night, you had an older, single African-American woman, a, a younger uh, Caucasian man with a lot of kids, uh, talking about an old, dead Scottish pastor. What do the three of those have in common? Nothing other than Jesus. And it was glorious to grow in my faith in Jesus through that sweet sister. Now, through the gospel, God creates a supernatural community of people, a community that really wouldn't exist if it wasn't, if Jesus wasn't real. I mean, just think about it. Would WSBC exist if Jesus wasn't real? Well, no, most of you guys probably wouldn't even be friends. Would WSBC exist if Jesus didn't actually live on this world? No. Would WSBC exist if Jesus didn't really die on the cross for our sins? No. Would WSBC exist if if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, defeating sin and death? Well, no. The only thing that unites us together here is because we believe that Jesus did all of those things. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite things about preaching, whether it's in the United States, in China, in Taiwan where we live now, one of my favorite things about preaching is that for a few minutes, I get to stand here and have one of the greatest views in the entire world. I get to stand here and look out on one of God's most spectacular work in the history of the universe. I get to stand out here and and look at people who were once enemies of God, opposed to him, but who now are his sons and daughters. A group of people who still struggle with sin, but who work to respond to sin with faith and repentance. For instance, WSBC might might be, be, be many things, but it is not less than a group of people who have been radically transformed and created by the gospel. Let me encourage you, one of, one, of the most, one of the most helpful things you could do to cultivate a love in this church is to get, get to know each other's testimonies. 
one sister is going to share her testimony tonight at evening service. Please come to that and hear how God has worked in that sister's life. There's nothing more important to know uh, about one another, about another member of WSBC than to know how that person has come to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. It's, it's summer. Things are slowing down. People are traveling. Pick one person that you don't know every month and get to know them. Ask them how they came to know Jesus. Pray for them. Praise God for the work in their life. Maybe they had a miraculous testimony like the Philippian jailer, or maybe it's just kind of normal, like the people in Thessalonica. Regardless, God has done a spectacular work in so many people's lives here. Get to know those things. Nothing will cultivate your love more for the people of WSBC than to get to know how God first loved them. Get to know people's testimonies. God creates a people through gospel proclamation. And that is exactly what God did here in Thessalonica, and it's exactly what he's done here in WSBC, and he will continue to do throughout the world. Let's look at the second half of our passage now. Verses 5 to 9, where we see God doesn't just create a people with the gospel. He, he shapes his people through gospel living. Point number two, God shapes his people through gospel living. We don't know exactly why, but there's a number of Jews in verses 5 to 9 that are not only jealous of what's going on, they actually start to work to stop this new church. They gather a bunch of people. I don't know what this actually, how this actually looked, but they gather a bunch of people that would be happy for an excuse to cause trouble. And they form some chaotic mob, and they set the city in an uproar. Now, somehow, they know to go to the house of this guy named Jason to look for Paul and Silas. Now, the scene is kind of setting up not to be all that different from Acts 16, which then led Paul and Silas to be in prison. Um, But here, this young church does something remarkable. Look closely. When the mob shows up at Jason's house, Paul and Silas are are nowhere to be found. Now, why? Well, it's because this church, this Jason and these other brothers and sisters, willingly put themselves in harm's way to protect Paul and Silas. This young church has a willingness to sacrifice for the brothers who just brought them the gospel. Now, while so much more can be said, I want to highlight just three ways this church demonstrates how the gospel shapes Christians to live and sacrifice for one another. First, the gospel shapes Christians so that Christians can sacrifice physically for one another, actually willing to stand in between another brother and harm's way. Look at verse 6. When the mob can't find Paul and Silas, well, what do they do? Do they just, you know, oh, bummer. I guess we can, like, calm down this whole mob thing. Well, no. They drag Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. Now, look at Jason. We don't see Jason's full response, but what Luke doesn't record, he doesn't record any of Jason trying to defend himself. He doesn't try to stick up for himself, and he doesn't disassociate. Oh, you know, I never knew that Paul guy. He didn't say that. No, they were willing to protect their brothers even to the point of being dragged off by a mob. 
Paul often, in his later letters, uses the analogy to describe the church, he uses the analogy of a body. Now, I wonder if this is partly where he understood that analogy. You know, just like if, if I break my leg, my whole body feels the effects. One church member's problem, well, it actually affects the entire church. Your problem as a fellow church member is actually my problem. Now, where does, do they get this idea to sacrifice physically for one another? I mean, remember, this is a brand new baby church. How did they know that they should bear each other's burdens and sorrows? Well, friends, they knew this from the gospel. Jason knew that Jesus was willing to leave his eternal father's side to die for him. Well, if that's true of Jesus, well, surely he can get off his couch, get dragged through the street, and love for a brother. Jason could sacrificially love Paul because Jesus sacrificially loved him. Brothers and sisters, we may not get to hide in a, an apostle in our apartment, but the church should be a place where needs are quickly shared and then needs are quickly sought to be met. Where we're willing to stand in place of another brother to suffer shame, to suffer even physically for the good of our brothers and sisters. Why? Because that's the gospel. The gospel shapes how we live with one another. Second, the gospel doesn't just shape how we, that we sacrifice physically for one another. The, the gospel shapes how Christians sacrifice their reputation for one another. Look at the end of verse 6 and, and, and verse 7. You know, once Jason and the, the brothers are in the court, well, the accusations just start flying. I mean, it's just kind of chaos. They have a complaint against Paul and Silas. You know, these men uh, who've, who have turned the world upside down. And uh, they have uh, accusations against Jason. Uh, Jason, that guy, he received them. He didn't reject them. And they have uh, accusations against the entire new Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonian church. They all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, if we just pause here real quick, it's kind of ironic. All these accusations, as crazy as they are, are like completely right. Uh, the world as they knew it actually had been turned upside down. There is a new king who is over everything. Jason has a new family. And as a, as a Christian, he's not just a Thessalonian anymore. He doesn't just obey by the laws there. Though no, he serves a greater king. He cares for and is concerned for the needs of his brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, we don't know how Jason responded, but Luke doesn't record him trying to deny these things. He doesn't try to, you know, diffuse it and say, I know it's not that big a deal. No, he's willing to suffer embarrassment and shame and loss of reputation all for Jesus and the good of his brothers and sisters in Jesus. Living as a member of the family of God is costly. Jason probably grew up with the people who are now lashing insults at him. He probably worked with those people who are now accusing him of causing chaos in the city. 
But God intends his church to increasingly look like their Savior. I mean, I love how Paul encourages the church at Philippi in Philippians 2. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Why? Because it's yours in Christ Jesus, who, through the fo- who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was willingly emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, his, on a cross. Friends, Christians sacrifice for each other, and they were willing to sacrifice our reputations for, for one another because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus was beaten and murdered by the people he created. Well, friends, it would be helpful for you guys to know what members of WSBC are the first Christians in their family. Who among you all would not know another Christian among their immediate family members? So when they go home for a holiday or uh, go home for, uh, to talk to parents that find it very odd at best and would be hostile at worst against their faith in Jesus. Well, friends, how could you love one another especially those who have no other believers in their family. Get to know the, only, the, the members of WSBC who don't have any other Christian family members and then be willing to help them learn what it looks like to, to sacrifice among their family for the name of Jesus. Well, third, Paul also shows us that Christians, because of the gospel, willingly sacrifice financially for other Christians. Look at verse 8 and 9. I mean, the city officials here, they seem to be mostly level-headed. And and they seem to have just charged Jason a fine. You know, they get dragged to court, the accusations are flying, and it ends with them saying, well, Jason, just just pay some money and we'll, you know, let this thing blow over. Well, without fighting it, Jason pays this unjust fine. And then things by God's grace, calm down. And we don't know a lot of the details, but we know that Jason and these brothers, and their love, they had a love for Paul and a love for their church that reached all the way down to their wallets. They were willing to sacrifice even their money to protect their brothers and sisters. You know, if you, if you read through the book of Acts and even the New, the New Testament, there's a, there's a good amount of conversation about money. And the theme that we see is that Christians regularly sacrifice their financial resources for the good of their brothers and sisters. Uh, this new family and community that God creates with the gospel then demonstrates that strange new family relationship by being willing to sacrifice and serve one another with the resources that God's given us. You know, every person and and family will look different in, in how they manage money, and that's totally fine. And yet every budget of a Christian 
should at least reflect a willingness to serve God's people with the resources that God has given them. The gospel is a message that of Jesus' sacrifice to save sinners. Oh, when Christians sacrifice for each other, whether it's, it's physical sacrifice, whether it's, uh, it's reputational sacrifice, or even financial sacrifice, well, friends, that is an opportunity for Christians to put that message on display where it's not just us proclaiming it, but it's actually us living out the gospel. You know, I love the illustration from a Puritan pastor named Richard Sibbs. In his book, The Bruised Reed, he says, The church of Christ is a common hospital, wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or another. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. The church is a common hospital where we're all both patients and doctors at the same time. We all struggle with sin, and yet then we all hold out the good medicine of the gospel to and apply it to each other's wounds. What a powerful gospel witness a church is when its members take the sacrificial role of trying to get to know what's going on in each other's lives and then how can we help each other trust Jesus in the midst of what's going on in each other's lives. We don't just point out each other's faults. No, we help each other see our sins so that then we can repent of it and then look together to Jesus. God didn't just start this church with the gospel. That's certainly true. He intends to shape this church with the gospel. And as he does it, a small, ordinary church begins to have extraordinary gospel impact. And gospel impact on one another. As each other, as we help each other follow Jesus more and more each day. And then extraordinary impact on those outside the church who look in and say, this is different. I can't see this outside of uh, in, in the world. I mean, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm so happy that you're here. I'd love to get to know you afterwards, but I hope that what we've talked about this morning sounds really, really, really strange to you. Because becoming a Christian, it, it doesn't make life easier. Life actually usually gets harder. I mean, just use Jason as an example. We don't know what he was doing before he became a Christian, but now he's getting dragged through the streets and paying fines. Not that fun. But if you become a Christian, you will know sacrifice, just like Jason did. But you'll know that sacrifice because you've come to know an immense sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. Would you this morning consider who Jesus is? and what he has done. The sacrifice that he has made for us so that we can be forgiven of our sin and live with God forever. That is a wonderful thing, and then it allows us to willingly sacrifice for others. Don't leave this morning without talking to another Christian about what it looks like to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. For you members of WSBC, those of you that, that, that have covenanted together, I mean, what a powerful gospel witness a church is when its members 
take that sacrificial role of a, of a common hospital. When church isn't something that we just kind of come to, do, and then leave, and then don't see each other until the next Sunday. You know, as you come to church each week, you actually have a job. You have an office to uphold, to help strengthen the faithful brothers, the faithfulness of the brothers and sisters around you, to help each other look to Jesus in the midst of each other's circumstances. And you have a job also to then humbly receive the help of others. That's usually often the harder one, is when someone tries to help me know my sin and then repent of it. Well, brothers and sisters, that's your job as church members. Would you this week pray asking God that to help you not just believe the gospel, but to help other people live it out? Pray that God would help you not only believe the gospel, but be shaped by the gospel. For you leaders, for you pastors, elders, leaders of WSBC, you know, as you shepherd this church, even through the last number of years, it's, it's, it's been incredible to what, what this church has gone through. But as you work to warn brothers and sisters of sin, as you seek to hold out the good gift of faith and repentance, brothers, embrace the reality that God intends you to lead in being shaped by the gospel, to, be, to lead in being shaped by the good shepherd, the one who, the one, the good shepherd who hated sin and loved his people so much that he was willing to die for them. I mean, spending your life to see people walk more faithfully with Jesus is a life well spent. It's a life of sacrifice, but it is a life well lived because it is a life that wonderfully pictures Jesus. You know, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament has always been 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 where Paul writes to this church later on, so this church that was just planted, he writes to them later on saying, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, after studying Acts 17, I now love that verse even more. Paul was ready to share the gospel of God with them, and he knew that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, and that's good. He was, he was ready to proclaim Jesus to them. But he was also eager to share his whole self with them because he got to watch this church live out the gospel. He got to watch how the gospel radically shaped these new brothers and sisters and how they were willingly sacrificing for one another even from the very beginning. And it was through this ordinary gospel living that God used this young church to do extraordinary things. And Paul was eager to share not just the gospel with him, but his entire self, because he saw the gospel take root in their lives. Friends, let's pray that God would give us the grace to do the exact same here. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you that your gospel is just as good today as it was yesterday. And, we, and it will be just as good tomorrow as it is today. God, I ask that you would continue to cause the saints here at WSBC to, to treasure the work of Christ, the work that he has done for them. 
conform this church more and more into a church that exemplifies and magnifies the gospel in all they do. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray and for your glory. Amen.